Thanks for joining us once again on our Top Lines and Tales podcast. This week, as always, we're fortunate to be sponsored by Harbro, suppliers and manufacturers of quality livestock nutrition. Welcome to another edition of Top Lines and Tales and to our history of native livestock breeds that we've been looking at. And a few weeks ago, we looked at um, the history of Robert Bakewell, and now we're moving into one of the breeds that he was involved in, the great longhorn breed. And I'm very pleased to have on the call today uh, Clive Rhodes, who was secretary of the Longhorn Society from 1975 to 1983, I believe, and an auctioneer of some standing, originally with uh, John Thornborough and then more recently with um, McCartney's. And, and I believe you're, you're chairman of McCartney's these days, uh, Clive. Uh, no, I've um, because I'm 65 on our partnership deed, you have to sell your shares. And uh, so when I was 65 in 2020, I had to sell my shares and give up the chairmanship. So I'm now a consultant. Excellent. Uh, which is a fa- fancy title for doing the same thing for less money. <laughs> I thought it'd be for more money. <laughs> I wish. Well, uh, Clive, welcome to the podcast. And also we have um, Peter Close. Peter uh, farming Fishwick Mains there in Berwickshire on the banks, lovely banks of the River Tweed, and past Longhorn chairman, council member of the Longhorn Society for just about all of the years of the last uh, four decades, 32 years, I think, uh, Peter, and been breeding Longhorn since 1976, uh, substantial breeder, winner of just about everything, including 13 female championships at the Royal Show, so uh, a massive record there behind you, Peter. Before we move on to the, the more recent Longhorns, we dealt with Bakewell's influence upon the breed in the last podcast, and we'll cover a little bit more of that in, in a bit a bit more detail, maybe slightly different to uh, to the podcast that we put out a few weeks ago. But let's let's say from Bakewell's demise, I think in 1795, that the fortunes of the Longhorn breed have uh, been pretty much a roller coaster. And uh, at first, Bakewell's band of disciples kept the breed stable in the face of increasing popularity of the Shorthorn, of course, for obvious reasons. And a number of Longhorns, along with the uh, Herefords, were exported to America in the 1820s to to cross on what they call the Longhorn, which of course is a Spanish uh, Criollo cattle in, there in Texas, the Texas Longhorn. And to this day, there are a number of Texas Longhorns that still hold that finchback pattern, which of course is characteristic of the Longhorn breed, but uh, they're essentially, those ones are composites and, and they're, they're, they're not what we would call a Longhorn, let's put it, let's put it that way. And as we move into the first decades of the 19th century, this empire began to crumble a little bit and uh, not so much from the onslaught of the Shorthorn, but rather from the breed's own shortcomings, I believe. And, and six years, of course, of the Durham Ox, and the Durham Ox would be exhibited up and down the country for all those years until eventually he grew into about a three-ton and fell on and broke his hip. It was a, a magnificent animal that seemed to be stealing all the headlines. And uh, the next 40-odd years, the Longhorn could easily have slipped out of existence altogether had it not been for a few faithful breeders who, uh, having seen the mistakes that some of their predecessors uh, made, began to start turning things around. So that, that's sort of a history going into the 18th century. Um, and Peter, of these particular uh, note were the Chapmans of Nuneaton and, of course, the Crew family of, at Colk Abbey there in Derbyshire. And, and, but the Longhorn was undoubtedly an aesthetic appeal for his docility that proved to, to be a tremendous asset to, to these people. Well, I think its fortunes very much reflected its aesthetic nature and docility. And, and when it was appearing at the shows and the landed gentry had money, um, the longhorn boomed, regardless of the fact that it had horns. Mm-hmm. Um, but when, when they weren't at the shows and... Poverty hit the landed gentry. Uh, repeal of the Corn Laws in 1866 didn't help. 
um, things, you know, it was a roller coaster, and the same has been true right through um, to the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Indeed, and as you mentioned, the shows, um, we'll maybe touch on that in a little bit more, but I know the shows like The Royal and, and Bingley Hall and Smithfield, the, the 1850s, they certainly did draw the attention if these animals were there being exhibited, but it was about all about getting the, getting the classes, making sure that they had the numbers and, and, and the animals there in the classes, I, su- I suppose. And because uh, many of the breeds initiated their herd books in the 1870s, uh, and we've seen that with Coates' uh, Shorthorn book, of course, and, and it was the same with the Longhorn, and, and uh, so the first herd book in the 1870s. And I gather from John Brigg, who, of course, was secretary of the Longhorn Society up until 1975, when I think you took it over, Clive, he said this was largely, the, 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 the Longhorn herd book was largely driven to enable tariff-free entry into the United States as pedigree breeding stock. So it's not even about keeping the pedigrees of the animals so much as making sure they had a pedigree on them so they can ship them overseas as breeding animals at a time when if they went over as meat or slaughter stock then uh, they were being yeah they were being taxed on being brought into the country of course and if we, if we just stick with those americans as well at this time the great plains were being colonized of course and cleared with of the buffalo and being restocked with domestic livestock and we've spoke about that a few times on this podcast and john was at pains to to point out that in volume one of the longhorn herd book printed printed in 1878 a statement and and i'm going to read it out uh, word for word as it's written in that early um herd book it was noted in 1870s that bakewell's predilection to produce the smallest possible amount of bone and the greatest aptitude to fatten tended to weaken of the constitution of the and of the loss of lean flesh and muscle as well as injury to the breeding and milking properties of the cattle so bred so it must be traced to the decline of the longhorns in the early part of the present century so basically john is saying that uh, contrary to what we've said on on previous uh, podcasts uh, that maybe bakewell didn't do the good with a longhorn breed particularly as uh, as everybody seems to think that he did and it's not a controversial point i think peter you, you may have told me or certainly somebody told me that um some of the best longhorn cattle are the ones that uh, bakewell didn't get his hands on would that be right well that's that's what i was told many years ago um well allegedly the original longhorns came from lancashire and the craven district of yorkshire and obviously well we know that bakewell got some from there um, but reputedly, the, the ones he didn't get his hands on led to the basically the, the long-term improvement of the breed. That would be, as I said, in contrast with the podcast that we recently put out, of course, with uh, with myself and, and, and Clive Davis, uh, and and to the antagonism a bit, little bit of his great band of followers worldwide to this day, who hail him as the father of many things agricultural, including, of course, his sheep and his horses, and uh, um, it certainly made strides in, and taught us maybe or taught the world breeding tactics that we didn't uh, absolutely have before. But uh, on the other hand, you're saying maybe all those tactics were to the detriment of that particular breed. As we move on into the 20th century, the two world wars, the Longhorns' fortunes continued on this roller coaster, uh, always being based on their attractive looks and docility. But uh, that reflected on how affluent, I suppose, the landed gentry were at that time. And uh, and, and whether the breed appeared at these shows. And, uh, Clive, it's damn hard to promote a breed when uh, if you can't get it out and, and, and take it to your show and, and have classes for it, isn't it? Absolutely. That's the whole point of agriculture size is, is shows, is selling your wares. And, 
if, if you're behind a closed door and nobody sees them, you've got to <laughs> you've got to push water uphill, which obviously is impossible. So uh, yeah, it's uh, it's essential that if whatever breed you've got, you want to get out there and show it and uh, and its attributes and uh, and then sell some stock on the back of it. There would have been some reasons behind this. We've all been involved in agricultural shows, all three of us, and, and uh, at various times. And I know with Alexa Smithfield, if there weren't enough numbers forward in two or three years in a row, then the classes were taken from them, and and there would be people who would have bias who were sitting on these councils in their bowler hats if I can't be too rude about it and um, some of these people would need to be enthusiasts of the breed to to make sure that the, the classes got forward and I suppose eventually that, that was what happened. The industry's always been a case of vested interest hasn't it? Absolutely. Well, life in general is about pushing yourself forward and trying to get get to the top, obviously, and that and that's what an agricultural show is about. That that's what competition is all about, whether it's in the show ring or uh, or, or anywhere else. Really, it's competition, and and those that get to the top get a reputation and sell their stock. So uh, that, that's just life, isn't it? I suppose it is. And by 1949, only a handful of enthusiasts remained with. Uh, Ted Walters of Grendon as Secretary of the Society from 1932 to 1972. So a long stint for, for Ted. And, um, of course, the herd book had lapsed during that time. And then he then was uh, was on hand to start compiling the, the next herd book. And I think that was 1949. And in there, there were, there were half a dozen or more breeders, including um, Ted himself, uh, and Noakes of the Hill Herd, Stanhope of the Wattling Herd, Wales of the Stoke Herd, Johnson of the Welland and Ibrook Herd, Tomlinson of the Armitage Herd, and Unwin from the Longdon Herd. So those those were the main men, I suppose, that were about when, when the, the breed was starting to come back a little bit. And those first three volumes covered a 13-year span. So uh, the breed was getting safe, but it was still pretty precarious, wasn't it? I mean, it, it's, uh, it, they needed to do something by then. Well, there was nothing going on because it essentially hadn't got a commercial role. Um, and without that, whether it, whether that commercial role be pretty looks or, or good beef or all sorts of breeding suckler cows or whatever. Um, without a commercial role, you're struggling. Indeed, and maybe rudderless a little bit as to where that commercial role was going to, was going to play. And possibly the turning point, Clive, would be in the 1963 Royal Show, before our day, I know, but when it moved to its uh, fantastic permanent base there at Stonely and the Longhorn classes came in there and then the show went on to be a fantastic event and I'm sorry it's not still there. Yeah, absolutely. It, it wasn't before my day, Andy. You're such a young, fresh-faced boy. <laughs> some, of, some of us were quite old by 63. Uh, and, and, well, and well remember uh, the first show uh, there at Stoneley, which was a bit of a quagmire, but that's another story. But yeah, Longhorn classes were introduced. Uh, and then we moved on to the early 1970s, probably 15 breeders. Um, and, um, you know, then things did start to uh, to move, really, because obviously the beginning of the 1970s really were halcyon days for the beef trade. Um, you know, we were coming out of the doldrums. The Rare Breed Survival Trust was being formed. The continental breeds were being imported. Um, and, you know, there's just a sway of interest in, in the beef uh, cycle in general, really. And uh, obviously the Longhorns were lucky enough to get caught up in that and, uh, and, and various sales ensued during the 70s. But yeah, in general, it was good years for the beef trading uh, and, and, and everybody got swept along with it. Indeed. And you mentioned uh, the, briefly uh, the Rare Breed Survival Trust. Of course, uh, one of the herds would be Joe Henson, who um, uh, who was one of the main men behind the 
Rebri Survival Trust, and I'm going to do a, um, a podcast on the the, the RBST itself because uh, it gets so regularly mentioned here on this series. But uh, Henson's involvement would actually be almost as significant as Bakewell in some ways, in a different way, because obviously he saw this breed and a few others, and and uh, with the Longhorn breed, and that of course uh, may be part of the instigation that uh, that was behind the Rebri Survival Trust. Yeah, and to be fair, you know, obviously, you know, we all know Adam Henson and Country File and uh, the Cotswold Farm Park, but Joe was obviously the instigator of the Cotswold Farm Park, which in those days was was uh, pretty monumental, really. But he he got an area of his farm that wasn't uh, particularly uh, good for arable, uh, grew some grass, but not very good, and uh, obviously had an eye, you know, for the future and, and thinking that people would be interested in seeing these breeds that weren't very. Um, common and obviously rare breeds then fits the bill and you've got longhorns you've got white parks you've all the other minority breeds that uh, to be fair to joe he was um, looking at basically to show people and, and get people through the turnstile certainly he gave them a home and, and he drew a bit back from it that's that's a brilliant thing and, and as i said we will in a subsequent series we'll mention that in a bit more detail just going back into the 70s um Unfortunately, the the deaths of some of the a couple of the stalwarts of the breed in the seventies, um, Stanhope, Nooks, and, and Waters, um, who was the secretary, the, the society needed a shake up. And uh, another man we mentioned earlier on, and again instrumental in this this uh, Longhorn story, was John Brigg, of course. And John was elected secretary and entrusted with the job of bringing the herd book up to date from uh, 1967. And in 1973, there were. 50 females and nine bulls registered, um, indicating that uh, the, the population of the breed was uh, was going forward. Yeah, absolutely, and all credit to John Brigg because he was an enthusiast in those days and enthusiastic enough to take the uh, uh, the secretaryship on uh, with as an honorarium, really. Um, really got paid for doing it, but he was enthusiastic enough to uh, you know, take up all the literature and so on and uh, start to form a herd book, um, which was no mean feat, to be fair, in those days. It's uh, it's a lot easier now with computers and all the rest of the recording paraphernalia, but in those days it was uh, almost a quill pen and a piece of paper. So all, all credit to John Brigg, who has uh, actually kept the breed going in the early days. In, indeed, as you said, a monumental task. And I know when we discussed um, Coates with his herd book and riding around the country on his white horse, calling in on farms and his satchel full of papers, and I'm not sure John was quite was, was quite that archaic, but as you said, it's a lot a, a lot harder than nowadays with the with the computers to put that in. Uh, and I think a few of these dispersals, from what I can can gather from fantastic information that Peter uh, has given me, were some of these dispersals then would bring in, in more breeders. And the Hill uh, herd dispersed in March 1973, uh, 32 females and four bulls, and that saw seven new herds coming in uh, from that one dispersal, including. Charles Cottrell Dormer at Rousham, and I remember, I remember uh, Cottrell Dormer being a big name within the breed when uh, when I was younger, going to the shows. Uh, Clive, you remember him, surely? Yes, yes, still going strong, still farming in his own right, still has a longhorn herd as well. So he's been a great stalwart to the breed. Um, and uh, if you look back through the pedigrees over the last forty years, then you know you will see Rousham. Um, they're in all of them in some uh, respect, either bulls or females. So he's been a great stalwart, and along with John Brigg, they, they did take it on. Let's talk about yourself, Clive. Uh, John Brigg took over as chairman of the society, and, and yourself replaced him as the secretary in 1975. Um, and uh, you would be an auctioneer by that time. Uh, Clive, would this be something you were doing alongside that, or was this a permanent role for yourself? 
I left school and did an agricultural correspondence course and something in 1973 and joined John Thornborough, who just sold, um, as many of your listeners will remember, just sold pedigree cattle mm-hmm. or pedigree livestock, but 95% of it would be pedigree cattle. Mm-hmm. And of course, as I said, the continental breeds were being imported from, apart from the Charolais in 1966. Everything else was coming in from 1970 onwards. Um, and in 1975, I would, well, I would have been in two years into my employment with John Thornborough, just a trainee auctioneer. Uh, obviously very interested in, in pedigrees coming from a uh, farming family and so on. So um, John didn't live very far from me. We probably only lived about uh, five or six miles apart and knew each other. By that time, um, you know, it was uh, it was starting to move forward. We'd had the hill dispersal in 73, as you mentioned. Um, and, uh, it, uh, and it was gaining momentum, really. And, and John was farming in his own right and still is. Uh, and basically, you can't do two jobs. So uh, he approached John Thornborough and said, do you have anybody in your office that may be interested in taking this forward? Um, so I was approached and uh, I did it within my training as, as an auctioneer with John Thornborough Co. So, yeah, I took over in 1975. And to keep some continuity, John Brigg uh, was elected as chairman. And, and an interesting job it would be as well back then, as we said earlier on. I mean, John would have put the records into shape, but you'd have new breeders and people coming in and new protocols arriving at, uh, around every corner. And, of course, you were battling a little bit, as you said, against the Continentals that were that were putting you out on the wings a little bit. And uh, yeah, absolutely. And, we, you know, we put a new registration system in, in, in action. And, um, yeah, it, it was starting, I wouldn't say John didn't run it professionally because he did. And as I said earlier, you know, we've got a, a debt of gratitude to John Brigg. But, uh, you know, things move on and, and we've got the office equipment at 11 Priory Terrace Limited Spa, which is where we were based. Um, and, and because it was starting to grow, it, you know, it, it needed perhaps... Um, a bit more backup than John was able to offer. Mm-hmm. Great, and uh, a lot of people probably won't know that that was where, where your humble beginnings came from, Clive. And uh, <laughs> uh, in 1976, the the RBST started its first sale, I think, at Stonely, and, and uh, with a few breeds, I guess, but that saw the dispersal of Simon Gilby's Essex herd, and uh, and again, five new breeders coming in there, Raby Castle, Pat Quinn, Colonel Stewart from the Isle of Cole in Scotland, so uh, we've got people coming in from further afield as well, and then moving on a little bit, in 1978 we saw three more dispersals from the Wintill herd, uh, the Grendon herd, and the Ibrook herd, and this time involving 55 females and pulling in 22 new breeders by 1978, and Clive, that's just right in, in your term there. There must have been some marketing, I guess, to bring in some of these new breeders, which included Michael Rosenberg, uh, Betty Weiner, and, of course, yourself, Peter. So Clive basically gave you a phone call one day and said, get down here and, and buy some of these Longhorns, did he? No, it's a totally different story, really. We'd been running a herd of about 60 Hereford Friesians, and when I came home from university, uh, we decided to expand them and put new sheds up and everything and ended up with about 120, 150 suckler cows all calving to the Charolais at that time. Um, but we were running into problems with the Hereford Friesian was more of a Hereford Holstein. Mm. And what we thought of calving were having problems with too much milk at calving, mastitis once the calves are weaned, and running to perhaps too much fat if they didn't calve straight away. So, well, then the other thing was with, with the Holstein blood, you were bulling in the winter and um, had to feed them like hell to make sure you got them all in calf. 
we also, if I just jump in there, I know because we were involved in uh, barley beef, as Clive will well know, in, in the in those seventies time, and when the Holstein came in there, it upset the beef job with us because we were feeding Frisian animals, and the Frisian had it was a lot easier flesh, whereas the Holstein would be much much harder fleshed animal altogether, wouldn't it? Yeah, and we, we thought, well, you know, we'll have to change breed. Um, well, like the idea of the Hereford Shorthorn, but everything coming out of Ireland seemed to be what we call the double cross. Um, there were three-quarter Herefords um, and just didn't really milk well enough for us. Well, Hereford, so, you would struggle to get Herefords of any size back then as well, I guess. We're talking end of 70s here, that, or, or early 70s rather, that um, you know, the Hereford had lost a lot of its scope, hadn't it? Yeah, well, they'd be coming out of dairy shorthorn cows in Ireland, um, so they were still reasonably big, but certainly they weren't the answer anyway. And we decided to look at all the breeds, Ended up thinking the Welsh Black had something to offer, but not as a purebred. And it was a question of what you put it to. If you put it to a continental, we thought we'd get too big a hungry cow. If you went to a beef breed, perhaps they wouldn't milk well enough in the summer. Well, we'd put it on the back rather than milk. Um, and if you went to a dairy-type cross, then we're back where we'd just come from. Yeah, so sure. in the end, we chose between the white bread shorthorn and the longhorn. And the longhorn got the nod, basically, because... It has a huge pelvis, the biggest pelvic to body weight ratio of any breed. And so that's how we sort of hit the longhorn track. Okay. Ended up buying a longhorn bull. Uh, okay, and you say the, the big pelvic, um, pelvic ratio there, pelvic area there, and that goes back to the, the initial size that these animals were going back in, into uh, before Bakewell's day. I suppose they would be one of the biggest breeds in the country. Oh, they're just no bigger, but just a bigger pelvic area. I, I think there'd be big rangy cattle, and that would be part of what he tried to alter, um, you know, taking the hook bones off them and, and pu- pushing more fat onto them, basically. Fair dues, and I'm going to stand here in, in his corner a little bit, fair dues, it did suit his um, suit the marketing that he had in the same way that he did with uh, the Leicester sheep, where he said the poor man wants to eat mutton, and or, or, or mutton fat, so he says, so he produced the animals that was for that market, and he produced the beef you know, for that market that, uh, that was needed, but uh, as you said, maybe to the detriment of the size of them. Yeah, well, that, that had two needs for the fat. It wasn't just the um, the energy it gave to people who were manual labourers, um, and also to use in the lamps. The, the tallow um, was used in lighting the houses. Mm-hmm. And going back to the the Welsh black, I believe then you started to cross the Longhorn with the Welsh black, uh, Peter. Again, it's quite an unusual cross. Two two native breeds from different ends of the country, but uh, similar breeds in a lot of ways, I guess. Yeah, we, we wanted to. A resilient cow that could cope with all conditions and could carve to the Charolais, um even as a two-year-old if necessary, and it absolutely fitted the bill tremendously. Um, so we were sort of building up a herd of Longhorn Welsh Blacks, and then with the BSE problems of the 90s, we didn't have the problems, but the, the industry did, mm. um, and the suckle calf job rather fell downhill. Um, so we decided we'd try and market breeding heifers out of these Longhorn Welsh Blacks. Okay. And that's how we got into Simmentals, but I could perhaps come to that later. Um, we, we had this Longhorn Bull breeding us these tremendous Longhorn Welsh Blacks. And it just seemed natural if we've got a Longhorn Bull, we might as well have a few females. <laughs> um, and actually, the, the first ones I got were bought from Aubrey Lowe's down in Devon, unseen, £200 apiece. <laughs> I thought we couldn't go far wrong there. <laughs> and then things happened, and it grew and grew from there. 
So that you went to a few pedigree sales yourself, though, and came home uh, empty-handed, uh, Peter. Yeah, the, in 1978, there was three Longhorn sales advertised. We went to the first one, Mrs. Hutton's at Windhill, thinking we might get a few more females. Um, I probably had a budget of round about six, seven hundred. Um, in actual fact, you couldn't buy much under seven or eight hundred. So we came home from there empty-handed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the next sale, the Grendon sale, we went down to that and I changed my attitude. Rather than chasing animals up in price and basically pushing the trade up, I decided we'd just buy the best and just buy it regardless. <laughs> and <laughs> Michael Rosenberg had been founding his herd um, at the Windhill sale. And he was there and one or two other buyers. And I had to buy the two, what I consider the best cows there, um, and beat Michael Rosenberg to get them. And we actually met afterwards and we were friends for life ever after that. He went on to sponsor the, well, to fund the Longhorn Stand at the Highland Show, which I ran from, I think, 1984 to 2004 when we got the Longhorn classes at the Highland. Excellent. And, and good, the good females are never dear. Clive, I'll bring you in there. We, we say it all the time. And I, I know you've sold me sheep and cattle and various things over the years and to everybody else in your pedigree role there. But uh, when you, if you're going to get into a breed, then uh, buy the best you can afford and, and buy the best you can find. Is that right? Absolutely, you know. Just just looking back at the uh, at the averages, uh, the Wintill herd is, uh, as Peter said, you know, terrific, terrific interest. Nineteen seventy eight. Remember, we're talking about uh, uh, ten cows and calves averaged a thousand and thirty one. Mm. Served heifers averaged twelve sixty. Maiden heifers averaged six thirty. Yes, it's nineteen seventy eight at Wintill, and uh, as I said earlier, halcyon days for the beef trade. So all, all all the breeds got a real lift from everything and the interest. That, you know, as we're seeing now, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, and, th- and then we had the Grendon sale, and, and Peter bought some good animals there. Uh, cow, cows with heifer calves average over fourteen hundred. Served heifers just a thousand. Maiden heifers five hundred. It, it was just on a roll, to be honest, and uh, and then we really hit the headlines when we got to Ibrook because um, they averaged over fourteen hundred. You had Ibrook team at three thousand, um, and, and as Peter said, people the likes of Michael Rosenberg, Betty Weiner, uh, Peter himself, just to spare his blushes. Um, but you got people coming into the breed that um, not only it was not all about money; it's about experience and employing people. And Betty Weiner had a, a great stockman, Les Impey, and yeah. Michael Rosenberg as well. And Peter was more than capable of taking it forward in his own right, as far as skills of feeding and presentation, and, and just showing what the breed could really do. So you know, once you had people that wanted to push it forward and, and could feed them you could see how they were going to respond. So perhaps it wasn't so so surprising looking back that that there was so much interest. Sure, sure. And would you be selling those those animals yourself at that time through John Thornborough? Uh, at the Wintel sale, I, I remember, can stand up and remember what I was wearing, let alone <laughs> anything else, believe it or not, sad creature that I am. Um, no, I, I was booking for John Thornborough at Wintel, uh, but Grendon, I, I was allowed to actually conduct the sale because I was secretary of the society at that time and got all the pedigrees, and, and he said, it's about time you did it. Um, so, uh, you know, plenty of interest there. And at the Ibrook sale, I sold those um uh, well, half of them because I sold we had some horses that day as well. So uh, we did that between us. But um, 
Yeah, it's like everything else, Andy. When there's a good trade, anybody can sell. Them. <laughs> when you hit a buffer that, when you hit a buffer that, you need somebody with some experience. But uh, no, no, joking apart, they they were comparatively easy sales to conduct because people wanted to get into the breed. Sure. Sure, indeed, and that's that's the way, isn't it? As you said, when the, when the demand is there, it's a it's a bit easier. But I've seen you sell, Clive. You can sell most things to most people, that's for sure, including yeah. Ryland sheep's to me at far too much money over the past year. Or two. <laughs> oh, you, well, you're you're another one that keeps picking the best. So My grandfather taught me well. <laughs> He did, and uh, um, Peter. Going back to that, you the, the the cattle that you bought at the Grendon sale. Just talk a few through those because I think they were the ones that put uh, the backbone in in your fishing herd. Yeah, I mean, they may have paid have a paid expense of it. I think it was fourteen hundred and ten guineas for one, and sixteen hundred for Grand and Dulcie. Between the, those two cows alone, I think they and their offspring produced seven Royal Show female champions. Um, Grand and Dulcie herself was actually um, champion in eighty four and eighty five, and her daughter Hawthorne, who was at foot in eighty five, she was Royal Show champion in. I think eighty-seven, ninety-three, and ninety-five. Wow! Certainly made those made those purchases look look fairly cheap. Then, as Clive just said, there must be a moral somewhere there. <laughs> the, the thing that surprises me, I get shot now. I don't know why I was taking ten guinea bids at fourteen hundred. But there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, that's some story that, that Peter's saying there, where he got started and winning all these shows there, and you'll back me up that uh, he's definitely been a man on a mission and a man going forward, but it it, it doesn't end there, does it? No, absolutely not. And, and all credit to Peter. You know, he, he understands cattle, he understands how to feed them, he understands how to present them. And if you've got a breed like the Longhorn that has the capabilities, you just want somebody to push it in the right direction and uh, and, 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 and bring all its attributes to the surface, which, which Peter did extremely well. And, it, you know, if you look back through the breed pedigrees, even now you see so much fishwick breeding um, as a base for most of the better herds, you know, the proof of the pudding is in the eating, yeah. so to speak. So, uh, no, tremendous. Indeed. Well, Peter, just just talk us through where where you went from those late seventies, and as you said, you won those shows there, and, and some of the Ibrook cattle did you a, a great deal of good as well, I believe. Yeah, at the Ibrook sale, we bought um, what was technically a dry cow, Ibrook Rachel, um, paid two thousand two hundred guineas for it, which seemed even to me exorbitant. Um, but in due course, it, it proved money well spent. Rachel um, went to the Royal Show in 1980 with Wintill John, the stock bull that we'd been using on the Welsh Blacks. We'd never shown anything before anywhere, apart from, I think, when I was 17, a Hereford heifer at Dunn's show. And we didn't come back with anything. I, I don't think they were actually bottom, but not far off it. And we then resolved to flush Rachel. She went away to... a company that was called T.A. Saul Unlimited in Lincolnshire, okay. which some of you may remember. They were the first of the embryo transplant firms, T.A. Saul Unlimited at Sleaford in Lincolnshire. Uh, the manager was a chap, chap called Richard Digby, and uh, they had their own vet and, and their own surgery and everything, and they, they pioneered E.T. in this country without question. So did she, was she successful uh, with the flush there, um, Peter? <laughs> well, she was away for eight months, and I think we got five embryos. Um, but she came home, fat as butter, ready to show at the Royal. Okay. And went to the 1981 Royal Show and was champion. Um, that was the year the Longhorns won the Burke Trophy. Mm-hmm. 
she was light in a quarter, so it was actually the second prize cow, Mrs. Weiner's Rosham Carnation, that went out to take the Burke Trophy with Ibrook Richard. We mentioned earlier the sale at Ibrook, and at that sale there was a, a very plain cow with a calf at foot, and Les Empey, who was Betty Weiner's stockman, had noticed this calf. I'd no idea if anybody else had. But anyway, they got the cow and calf for, I think, 850 guineas. And that calf was Idrick Richard that came out and won the Burke Trophy under Ben Coote. A lot of people said the long ones were lucky. Um, but in actual fact, John Dwyer, who had been leading Rachel for us in the show ring, um, mainly because he said that he knew the judge very well. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he won £20 from Robert de Pass, the Charlie breeder. Betting that the Longhorns would win the Burke Trophy. Brilliant! And we all know the story of Ben, of course, Ben judging the animals there, and then and then telling the Queen. I think they were the only one, the only buggers that could walk, if I remember right. Was was his, was his words to the Queen on that particular day? And Ben, of course, one of life's great characters, and uh, and still recognised that these traditional breeds had their merits at a time when everybody else was looking looking to France. So uh, um, yeah, it was it was great a great day for the breed. Yeah, I mean, Ben really concentrated on animals that could walk. I mean, we won the long one, well, the any other breed classes at Kelso Show many years after that when Ben was judging. Um, Brian Walling had taken the slayers all around the country, won everywhere with his pair of fantastic slayers, and they turned up at Kelso Show in the same class as the Longhorns. And I think the championship was between our Longhorn and Ben Walling's bull. And um, Ben Coots, Brian Walling's bully, sorry. And Ben Coots sent them up the ring, and the Longhorn got to the other end first. <laughs> so he sent them up again, and the Longhorn won again that time. So the Longhorn got the championship. <laughs> Egg and spoon race. And they are a long legged beast as well, as the lure. So you had, to do, you had to do some quick walking yourself, I guess, to get up there. But Ben, some character, we've I've talked about him on this podcast and was, was a friend of mine in his later years. And uh, as you said, a man that, that saw structure and the merits of the breed over, over and above what everybody else was looking for, for just for profit. And. Uh, Great that he that he stuck behind it. Those embryos, uh, Peter, that we've we've digressed to a little bit there. Um, one of those was uh, Fishwick Daydream, is that right? And she went on to to be a, a very great creature. Yeah, we we got three heifers um, from the embryos. The best of which was Daydream. Daydream went back to the royal show as a three-year-old first calf heifer um, with a a calf called Fantasy at foot and. We were standing around outside the Charley tent where the AGM had been held, and Alan Goodland, who had just won the Charley Championship with Lakeland and Jess, came out and saw them. And he came up to me and said, if you can breed heifers like that, you're in the right breed. It's a great credit. And, and Sir Jess was a fantastic animal as well. And of course, Charolais would have been right in their heyday back uh, back then. Clive, that's some praise, isn't it? Uh, Daydream must have, must have been some cow. Was that, was that on your watch, Clive? That absolutely fit. Daydream with fantasy. And of course, they were a reserve female champion that day. I think that's probably what Alan Goodland was referring to. So, uh, um, you know, he could see the potential of them as well. Yeah, D- Daydream was by Ben Bragaric and she bred tremendous females. The first calf that I've mentioned, Fantasy, was several times first at the Royal. Uh, I think twice reserve female champion. But she also was five times on the trot of the Great Yorkshire Show champion. Wow. Um, and everybody was sick of her there, I think. 
an ex an ex daughter galaxy um bred charisma who was eventually sold to germany and she was the matriarch of sabine's entities heard over there and another daughter of hers is jade that's the mother of charlie sutcliffe's herd builder fishic olympic yeah. So definitely a breeding cow and a line that everybody would would be looking for and probably still watching to this day. And by by now, Peter, you'd built the herd up to you know to forty odd cows, I believe. Yeah, we're just around about the forty mark. In fact, I think there was only about three hundred breeding longhorn cows at that time. So we had well over ten percent of the breeding females. Oh, you did. So whilst the three cows were purchased in seventy eight and later added to Shugborough Campion. Um, that gave us a good base, but it was clear that we weren't going anywhere really without the right bull. And we'd seen a bull called Rousham Goliath as a two-year-old at the 1982 Royal. I think he was third. He wasn't overfleshed, and we bought him from Charles Cottrell He was delivered two months later, um, pretty emaciated, because he'd been working very hard for the previous two months. It actually took us two years to fully flesh him up and he won the Royal in 1984. Um, and he was supreme champion over Dulcie, who was reserve champion. But he really stamped his females. His sons weren't fantastic. Um, but Goliath really bred females tremendously. He was a female breeder, yeah. And and then, of course, so you've got these great females out of Goliath. They uh, need another bull now, Peter. They're hard to keep buying these bulls when most of the things in the country are all out of your own breeding to start with. Well, we needed a bull to follow on to Goliath's daughters, and we actually saw a bull called Glavin Alliance at the 87 Royal Show, and he looked to fit the bill. He was by Reisham Iver, um, who was to some extent related to Goliath, because um, on his mother's side, he was line-bred to Hill Texmas. And again, he wasn't the biggest, but he had a tremendous back end and passed it on to his offspring, um, probably the most notable of, of which was Fisher Kinsman out of fantasy. Um, and Phil Evans bought Kinsman as a 10-month-old calf off his mother at the Royal Show in 89. Wow, he must have seen her. And it was really Kinsman that put a lot of the backsides into the breed rather than Alliance. Um, he nicked really well with Phil's... Well, he had a, he had a bull called Glantrossi Kestrel that I think it had been reared on um, ad-lib milk from dairy cows. <laughs> uh, You're not allowed to say that. <laughs> but, but it was out of physic fanfare, and it helped to spread the genetics right through the breed. Okay. You mentioned, just going back there, just briefly, obviously we've had a little bit of a downer on, on, uh, for our um, Bakewell fans earlier on, but a little bit of close breeding there, and it must have been quite hard to get away from that close breeding. Look, the Bakewell left us this legacy where we could breed fathers on daughters and daughters on, on back to the, to the sons and such like, but it must have been actually quite quite difficult to find outcrosses or, or find crosses that, that, that were, if they were going to be inbred, well, line bred, then uh, they would be uh, they would have to be exactly the right ones to not to, to catch the faults there, Peter. Um, not really. Um, I don't want to get too technical, but Bakewell. I've, I've looked at some of Bakewell's animals, two penny and so on, and they're not as hugely inbred as as was made out. Um, there's a method of measuring it. And he was working around about 15 to 18% inbreeding. Is that all? Okay. As, a gu- as a guide, um, half-brother to half-sister is 12 and a half, oh. and sire on daughter is 25. So he, he wasn't out of the window. We're quite happy to 
um, inbreed up to 15, 20%, maybe not 20, but 15 to 18%, which is exactly what he was doing. Certainly, yes, something I've studied as well, going back the way as well from great breeders, and some breeders still out there would tell me this as well. You can go up to 12.5% if you, if, if you yeah, on a regular basis and and, uh, and keep it that way, and, and, and everything runs fine. So you're not, he's not too far at the ballpark, is he? No, and, and a lot of those cattle at the Ibrook sale, they were around about the 25 to 30% inbred, mm-hmm. okay. which is you know, nearly twice as much as Bacon was doing. Sure, sure, sure. So you bought uh, you bought the Bull Alliance. So he was uh, he's your next big big thing. Uh, Peter was to, to put you right. Yep, he, he was a super little bull. He was wasn't huge, um, but he bred well. He, unfortunately, and Kerry Long, his breeder, won't mind me saying so. She she reared him almost as a pet, uh, and he had a super nature, but he had no idea what discipline was. And we had him for two years, and he had no respect whatsoever for gates, especially wooden ones. <laughs> we, thought, we thought he was probably starting a kindling business. <laughs> anyway, he ended up dismantling two in a week. And then my son Rob was about 14 at the time. He walked straight through him with a stick, not any nastiness about it, but just walked through him. So I'm afraid he went to the happy hunting ground. And, it was only the next year that we really appreciated what amazing calves. Yeah, doing. a shame, isn't it? We all know in a lot of other breeds, and again, discussed regularly on this podcast, that there are some some females and bulls that, that breed that temper through to the next one. But uh, it's such a docile breed, are the Longhorns there? I imagine you didn't want to breed with one uh, that hadn't got the right attitude, but it sounds like you wish you'd kept him a bit longer all the same. Well, we couldn't afford the gates. <laughs> <laughs> As you said, he left the back ends there, and uh, what were the what were the notable bulls that uh, that he left behind in, in the fish record? Well, he he certainly left a, a worthy legacy. I wouldn't say bulls wise, other than um, Phil Evans's kinsman, but Germany's charisma that I've already mentioned, Blackbrook's Kestrel and Crystal that they bought from Alan Dunseith and Jim Swindon um, were both by him. Southfield's Fisher Loyalty was by him. Um, and the Crockmore Herds um, stock bull, Fisher Cosmic, was by him. And Cosmic, for a long time, was the um, breed record priced bull. Um, unfortunately, when he went away to the rare breed sale, um, Daydream had just carved, and just literally that morning, and when whilst we were away, she ended up doing the splits. And when we came back, she ended up being shot. So, in actual fact, we'd have been better shooting the bull and staying at home. But um, that's history. And the record price, what, what price are we talking about and what year, Peter? That was, that was 3,400. Okay. But most of all, really, of all Alliance's offspring, I think Karen was the most influential and most important. Uh-huh. She was an amazing animal. The, the breed nature craft model is of her. And she bred Fishick Donner, the 2005 Royal Show Breed Champion. Pat Stanley loved Karen, and when she bought her daughter Candace at her sale in 2003, I was actually a bit naughty when she asked what I was telling her. As I replied, we've got a better one at home. <laughs> we'll add that one. <laughs> uh, can, can you repeat the reply you got or not? I think she was gobsmacked. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't say I love that one as well then. No, I don't think anything came out of the man. Uh, Peter, of, of 
in between these times, you won 11 Royal Show female champions, five reserve females, five champion junior heifers. You all a, a lot of females going on here, but it must have got harder and harder as the breed numbers started to um, increase and uh, get harder to to win. Maybe just had to go a bit bit uh, deeper into, into the feedback, maybe. Yeah, there was there was more people came into the um, more professional end of the showing ring. Um, I have to admit, we didn't we we weren't in a position to start feeding them the year before and bring them through the winter ready for showing. So we had to sort of um, bring it a bit, really. Um, and perhaps you know, perhaps we did take our eye off the ball a bit because we'd become involved with the Simmental and we're showing them as well. We we bought a Simmental bull to put onto the long horn Welsh blacks in 1989, um, really to to market breeding heifers, because not many people were wanting a Charolais cross um, heifer as a suckler cow, and a little bit like the Longhorns, the, the fact that the Simmental bull um, seemed to necessitate the need to have some females. Yeah. Um, so we got into those and. That grew and grew and grew, and at one point we ended up with, I think, 120 pedigree Simmentals and 40 pedigree Longhorns, wow. okay. which was a bit over the top. But it, it was really precipitated by the 2001 foot and mouth, which just seemed to occur as we were about to have a reduction sale. Oh dear. Okay, and, and the Simmentals... Uh, we'll go on to it, I think, maybe slightly later. And, but uh, but without being too controversial, uh, Peter, your reign over the breed started to slow down around about that time come the millennium, and uh, and a few other breeders started jousting for those medals. Yeah, I mean, obviously competition was increasing, and if 1981 to 95, 96, 97 belonged to Fishick, it's only fair to say that the end of the 90s and the 2000s under the Royal Show demise belonged mostly to Blackbrook and Southfield. The Pat Stanley and John Stanley at Blackbrook and um, David and Angela Blockley at Southfield. Um, established in 89, Blackbrook had acquired six or seven Goliath and Alliance daughters um, from breeders who had supported our production sales, um, notably Tony Hearn, the Simmental breeder, and um, Alan Dunsey from Jim Swindon um, that had they were um, retired engineers who wanted a hobby for their retirement and decided that breeding longhorns was it. Mm-hmm. But Pat's done an amazing job combining um, these lines in a very Bakewellian manner, mm. um, breeding in and across each line of the of the longhorns, and she's produced a much meatier, neater longhorn that along with David and Angela at Southfield, they've really dominated the show ring in recent years. Um, and likewise, at Southfield, they also acquired six or seven foundation females um, from Fishick. Well, not necessarily from us, but Fishick females. Um, the most influential whisk in the herd was Fishick Lark, which is an alliance um, daughter out of Gamble, who was the one we mentioned earlier that was at foot to Dulcie at the Royal Show in 84. Pat, Pat actually wrote a book, didn't she? Because I know uh, when I was researching for Bakewell Ants for, for some of this podcast, her uh, book has been on my shelf for many years and I hadn't read it and I, I took to reading it and uh, a fantastic uh, fantastic story she put there. Yes, to be fair to Pat, she did a lot of research for that book and uh, produced it extremely well and uh, 
uh, it's a bit of a benchmark, really, in many respects. Out there available on Amazon as we speak, I'm sure. And, and Peter, going back to your story here, you've now got down to 40 longhorns and 120 um, scimitar cows. Uh, um, looked like you were going in a totally different direction, but then another change of tack. Perhaps you, you backed the scimitars down a little bit, did you? Yeah, yes. Yeah. Since um, 2001, we've, we've rationalised things a bit, reducing the scimitar numbers. Um, I think there were, maybe still are, too many breeders chasing the bull market. So we're now focused on the longhorns and also producing longhorn cross-pulling heifers, um, which market seems to be exploding. Longhorn cross-scimitar pulling um, heifers, am I right there in that? Yes. That, uh-huh. That's right, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, there's there's prominent breeders, uh, commercial breeders, like the Sutherlands at Sidmister near Thurstow uh-huh. and the Barclays at Hairstone, who are using the longhorn scimitar as a commercial suckler cow. Really? And they're putting them to Charolais and... Belgian Blues, I think. Okay. Um, and Stuart Dodd at Lockerbie, he's using the Longhorn Cross Limousin uh, and the Longhorn Cross South Devon. But pedigree-wise, I mean, we sorted ourselves out after the turn of the century and we purchased in 2004 jointly with Andrew Nelson and the McClungs at Kelso, Bernard Llewellyn's Carrick Kennan, which had been around the show circuit winning everywhere. And that was for a breed record of 8,400 at Melton Mobile. Wow. Is that still the record? And for a bull, yes, I think so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kennan really re-established the power and stretch that we've been looking for in our longhorns. And it was his son, Fritchick Lord of the Rings, out of Cropmore Foxglove. He was born in 211, and that really got us going again. Um, Foxglove was a lovely, well-balanced cow, carried both Kinsman and Optimist on the sire side, and Goliath and the lions through Cosmic on the dam side. And we showed him extensively in 2012 as a yearling. I think we went to about 15 shows um, and got, I think, 56 points in the Bull of the Year to, um, competition where normally a bull with about 25 would win it. <laughs> okay. uh, he, wouldn't, he won again in 2013, and he's actually still going strong. Um, but he, he looks like being superseded by another bull out of... Foxglove, um, and that bull is by McCavity, which is, well, was a young bull out of Donna that won the Royal Show in 2005. Unfortunately, we lost McCavity when he put his stifle out a couple of years ago, um, but his son out of Lordy's mother is a bull called Philandra, and he is something really exceptional. And I think it'll take us and the breed a long way forward, hopefully. Excellent. So yeah, that, that's a full circle, 40 years, we just said, or very nearly, and uh, and you're still out there at the top and sounded like you've got something still exciting there to be turning out when we get some more shows going again, Peter. And um, if we move on to the crossbred you know, side of it, uh, you would sell now a lot of bulls from your herd there going on to all sorts of animals, I guess, across the country. Yeah, I mean... We're selling about, at the moment, probably 10 bulls a year, and half the inquiries we get and half the sales we get uh, are for long-run bulls to go on to commercial um, herds trying to breed, breed better replacements. A lot, lot of them going on to Simmentals, Anguses. In the past, quite a few went on to Galloways, although I haven't had so many inquiries for that recently. Um, they were even putting them on to Highlands um, out on on the West Coast and on some of the islands. 
Fantastic cross that would be. I'd love to see that. And we, Peter, you mentioned that you sell a lot of your bulls into the, the suckler commercial herd. And of course, a lot of these guys will be wanting bulls that are dehorned. Uh, so I assume it must be a decision you have to make at a, a young age or a weaning age that you're going to lop the horns off these bulls and which ones you're going to keep the horns on. And is there is there a market out there or maybe a chance of breeding a polled longhorn one day, maybe? Yeah, as far as dehorning is concerned, um, yes, quite a few of the commercial breeders do want them with the horns off. Um, we probably take a random decision which ones would take the horns off. We use paste, which works quite well, as long as you make sure the cow doesn't lick the paste yes. off. Um, and and as far as polling is concerned, I actually got it through the AGM in 1983 that we could grade up. Uh, not into the full herd book, into a separate polled register. Um, each animal has to contain the word pole in its name. And you have to start off with pure beef bloodlines, obviously one of which will be polled. Okay. Um, at the moment, we're actually doing it using an Angus with a longhorn bull. And then to comply with the regulations we set up, um, we go back for... Uh, five generations five. to a pure longhorn bull okay. um, to get up to 31, 32. A little bit closer than some of the Americans do, but again, I don't upset my American listeners. They're great people. Clive, you might have been involved in that. Sounds like it was still, it was still while you were in the secretary time there. There must have been a hell of a resistance against that from some of the very traditional listeners, of which we have plenty on this this program, to say we're we're bastardising what is a, is a is a is a breed by name. Yeah, actually, I'd probably just finished that because I, I then went to McCartney's uh, in 84. So I was just uh, winding down with the Longhorns as far as the secretaryship's concerned. But obviously, being in the industry, you know, it's an ongoing debate. And, and that's got to be a good thing for all concerned. But, uh, you know, some people call it progress. Some people don't. But uh, that, that's, you know, beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. But you can't argue with the, the commercial attributes that a commercial man, probably doesn't want cattle with a lot of horns about them, to be honest. So uh, that's just straightforward management. Uh, uh, there are the purists out there who will say that uh, as soon as you take the horns off them, uh, it's no longer a longhorn, uh, Peter. Would I, uh, would I be right? We seem to have, even amongst you know, rational commercial breeders, uh, a mental block to taking the horns off a longhorn. You know, they're happy to dehorn Charolais and Simmentals, but they, they still say, oh, you can't dehorn a longhorn. <laughs> Um, not dehorn they, they, they've pulled the limousine and they've pulled the Charolais for that matter as well but then uh, I think they probably got away with that because they're a newer breed they're not standing behind what is close on 300 years of history to, to where that was one of their resounding features and obviously where the name came from yeah and we are now allowed to show long ones without horns in the show ring you can show them without um, horns but not pulled I'll qualify that um, we're allowed to disbud them and show them we can't dehorn them and show them that clears that up. We've uh, we've had a, a fantastic history going back of the way um, on the Longhorns. Uh, Peter, we probably need to talk about a few more prominent herds, apart from just Fishwick, which uh, that's for, for for all Fishwick have been instrumental in being behind uh, behind the breed so much now, and possibly the blood is in just about all the other breeds. Who are the, who are the breeders out there now that uh, that we're looking at in in the Longhorn breed that uh, the genetics are, are are in demand? Inevitably, you've got to look towards the volume bull breeders. Um, when you consider what impact other herds have on the breed. And there's obviously Blackbrook and Southfield that I've mentioned earlier. Um, and embarrassingly, all the other main influences are also founded or strongly imbued with fishing blood. But Bernard Llewellyn 
Carrick, Kennan, um, Bernard and I have swapped or shared bulls for the past couple of decades and actually currently share Lord of the Rings. Um, you have to look at Graham Lennox at Aberdeen, Aberdeen Bloodlines, um, well, virtually all go back to fishing chauvinists. It's called Aberdeen. It, it was the city farm at Aberdeen, and then um, the Lennox family took over the cattle, so they had a new herd number. But I think they've allowed to be they've been allowed to retain the the herd name. And then there's Charlie Sutcliffe at Tetford. Um, Char- Charlie's herd, it, it, his sort of foundation stock bull was Fishing Olympic, um, which was a grandson of Daydream by Longgrove Resolve. And he's now using an equally impressive Fishic Prosperity by McAverty. Okay. Um, a newer breeder, Bertie Fasson at Jenkins. Um, he's hit the ground running, really, in the show ring with judicious purchases right across the breed. Uh, and he got a drove of McCavity daughters and Lord of the Rings daughters from us. I would like to mention some past herds that have been particularly influential, and that's Nikki Luckett, our current president at Wellhead. She used to sell a lot of bulls, and they've they've had a big impact in the breed. And former members and breeders who are unfortunately not with us, uh, John Backhouse at Raincliffe and Phil Evans at Linton, and and probably John and Joshua Brigg at Gorse. Mm -hmm. And when I lived back uh, near home in Worcestershire, we had a, a neighbour down the way who bred a lot of geese, and uh, he was into um, longhorns as well. Or a lady called Judy Goodman. Are they, are they still breed us, Clive? Yeah, Judy Goodman would be obviously um, goose guru, whereas her son Andrew has now got a, a very sizable herd of longhorns, does extremely well with them, is very committed to them, uh, produces a lot of commercial steers, which would, would stand there, stand next to any continentals in the marketplace as far as price is concerned. Um, just going to add to what Peter was saying uh, about other influential breeders, and he just touched on gorse. Um, and just going back to John Brigg, of course, back to the uh, end of the 60s, early 70s and what he did for the breed. And, of course, had his own herd, which he dispersed a couple of years ago. And we were talking about big prices in 1976 going on into 1978. But, of course, you know, he holds a record for, for a cow and with a bull calf foot foot at 12,000 guineas. Right. So uh, p- perhaps we're starting another era um, where the breed leaps on again because everything ebbs and flows and perhaps we've seen some ebbing in the last uh, few years with the Longhorns but uh, perhaps it's set to flow again and uh, you know with the interest that there was in that sale and subsequent sales uh, and the beef industry as a whole um, I think things are set farewell. I think the breed is set farewell. And that's something else I suppose I should mention. I know we had a there was a crowd down the road from us called Happy Meat, so I think they sold Goodman's Meat. And is there a market out there, Peter? Are you finding a market for purebred or three-quarter bred or, or, or longhorn beef, as there are with Highlands and Galloways and, and all the other traditional breeds that we're featuring just lately? Um, well, we used to do beef boxes many years. In fact, it was one of the first ones to start doing beef boxes, but um, we packed up that oh, 20 years ago, I think. Um, we keep thinking we should start again. Um, and as far as our own meat sales are concerned, basically we're selling everything for breeding apart from uh, a handful of castrates that go into the Carlisle Mark. Sure. sure, but Clive, you're saying you're seeing a few coming through coming through your beef sales in the market, are you? Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, uh, you know, it is a niche market. You, you know, obviously there's uh, certain celebrity chefs that are very keen on longhorn beef and it's had a lot of pub- publicity via that uh, avenue. That would be Mr. Heston Blumenthal. 
farm shops are selling it because like most uh, native breeds there's good marbling through the meat it, you know it cooks well it tastes well and uh, when you've got that combination people come back to buy more sure sure and clive as an auctioneer you sell uh, you have a lot of the, the main pedigree sales certainly in england now coming through mccartney's um and we see seeing a, a massive demand for native breeds of which this series is all about there uh, in, in, in the sheep and the cattle is the longhorn breed that you see uh, growing again is it is it, are we rising in popularity again is the demand coming there are people more people coming in queuing up for for the, for the pure sales yeah i'm i'm certainly there is a place for them i'm not i'm not suggesting that they are going to blow the herefords and the angus and and some other continental breeds out of the water because i don't think they will but there's as peter has well explained earlier in the in the debate that uh, the suckler cow is probably the way forward for the longhorn I, you know there's there's certain uh, dairy men that would use a uh, a longhorn for the calf and the butelar scheme and so on so uh, there's there's niche markets out there for the longhorns without question um, whether they will ever become a dominant beef breed, I would hesitate to suggest that. Uh, but there is certainly a marketplace for them, uh, probably more on the suckler cow side, but there, there is a use for, you know, use of the longhorn bulls on heifers and so on. Um, and as for most native breeds, they are coming back into fashion. Yeah. And am I right in thinking that McCartney's do have the national sale of longhorns at Worcester? Yes, we do. We have a couple of sales a year, plus uh, you know, production sales and dispersal sales. And uh, we've been conducting those sales since, uh, as we said earlier, the, the nine, early 1970s. So we're, we're, we're very proud to be involved with them. Uh, on, on a personal and a company level. You certainly would be proud, uh, Clive, on a personal level. It's a hell of a journey you've been through with the breed, even longer than Peter here. And uh, Peter, that's a fantastic story that we've heard about Fishick uh, going through the way. There's a, is there anything else you want to add, Peter, yourself? No, other than um, we did sort of mention regrets and I do have regrets that three or four bulls that we've had we haven't made maximum use of that. I think Clive and myself and possibly our listener won't be worrying too much about your heartfelt regrets there. Peter, for a man who's been at the top of the breed for nigh on 40 years, sound like you've still got some of the best goods there in town and most of the uh, most of the breeding in the country goes back to yourself there. Uh, absolute credit to you for uh, what you've done through the breed and for your, the way you've underpinned it with your commitment through you know, councils and various other ways. And likewise, Clive, for your absolute commitment as well and commitment to both of you helping me today on, on this podcast and getting the the true history i hope a, a satisfactory history should i say of the longhorn breed out there to people that maybe wouldn't know all about it no, it's been great to talk to you andy as always and always good to see you in the market as well and uh, it's good to catch up with peter again as well we've uh, we've had a long journey and we haven't finished it yet hopefully so uh, no thank you andy for the opportunity great thank you clive yeah, peter thank it's you been, it's been a pleasure to chat to both of you okay Thanks again for listening to this week's Top Lines and Tales podcast. Uh, once again, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Harbro, uh, who are, of course, suppliers and manufacturers of quality livestock nutrition and nutritional advice. Visit their website for more information or find them on Facebook. And whilst on Facebook, why not look up the Top Lines and Tales Facebook page where you'll find lots of photographs and other information to back up this and other episodes.